0: Genesis 3 in your Bibles, please. Once again, um, we're going to be kind of all over the place a little bit as we finish up what we might call a little bit of a topical mini-series on the spirit realm. Two weeks ago, we exposited uh, the passage in 1 Samuel 28 and considered Saul's failures to follow the true and the living God and sought to mock God by using the demonic realm in order to make up for that which God had not given him. Last week we considered the afterlife and how to understand it in light of biblical teaching. And I I pray that that was um, enlightening perhaps to some of you or confirming maybe in some of your hearts as to what we believe about the afterlife. And and there is some wiggle room in in some of those interpretations and we understand that. But uh, by and large uh, we find that many believers don't have a good understanding of of how the Bible presents it, and I hope that was a help to you. Uh, This week we speak on the spirit realm in and of itself, and as I mentioned last week and the week before, this is more or less going to be a primer. There's only so much I can cover in the time that we have today, and there's so much more that could be, and at some point in the near future, Lord willing, I will take some time to to do a, a series of... Maybe four weeks or six weeks that that trace us through a deeper understanding of the spirit realm. Why, what, the whys and the hows and the whats and the direction in which it goes. It is an oft ignored element of our brand of Christianity. I can't say Christianity as a whole, but particularly as we think of um those in the the baptist tradition or those in in what we might call the conservative evangelical um realm uh, the the spirit realm is oft ignored there's this balance we all we all recognize god the father but there are two other members of the trinity there's god the son and there's god the holy spirit and they each have a role in our lives and yet because of the the dynamics of of how we approach the word of god Jesus Christ, of course, being the word of God incarnate and the Holy Spirit uh, being the the spirit that, that empowers the capacity of the Christian to do what is right. There's this tension that has formed in Christian circles. And on the one end, you have the charismatics who have highlighted the, the nature of the spirit realm to the exclusion of the word of God. And so they ignore what the word of God says and they follow quite often feelings and emotions to an unhealthy end. And on the other hand, and you have people that are so word centric, scripture centric, that they, they go so far as, as almost to deny any role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we need to, as with everything in the Christian life, find that balance. God is a God of balance. And oftentimes, and and you can know this in, in many realms of theology, if you see two sides that are really opposed to one another, oftentimes, look for truth right about here. You've got the one side and you've got the other side and they have swung to opposite ends of a pendulum. And God is a God of balance. Oftentimes, if you're looking... for for truth in the word of God, you're going to find it somewhere in the middle. We spoke why two weeks ago uh, um, that, that there were some of the natural inhibitions that we might have to an understanding of the spirit realm. The scriptures are somewhat ambiguous concerning them. Historically, we also understand that Western culture has been strongly dominated by a Christian worldview. And because of the strong, dominant Christian worldview, as we'll see as we get to our application today, truth has been fairly prevalent in Western culture. And truth is the direct counterattack to the satanic and demonic realm. And because of that, where truth and light shine, the demonic realm has to hide in the shadows. As truth and light are minimized, the demonic realm can become more bold in its opposition, more upfront because darkness prevails. Well, in Western culture, for quite some time, truth has been pretty prevalent. I mean, even though you've had your issues and, and the demonic realm and, 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 and wickedness has always been there, there has been a cultural truth that has pervaded. Well, well that is no longer the case. And as we see truth enfold into just these little lamps around this country of churches, and it's no longer really touching culture, you'll see culture become more bold and more obvious in its manifestations of the spirit and demonic realm. I will not take the time in this brief series to expound upon all that the spirit realm has to, to it. But we will at some point. Today's message is essential for the believer, however, to understand. Because it touches the very fabric of so many issues that are really bubbling up in our culture today. And I'm going to present this information in what we might call three parts this morning. First, I'm going to try to give you a big picture understanding of what is happening. Uh, of what is happening around us. A big picture understanding ...of why the spirit realm even cares, how it relates to humanity, why it cares about humans at all. Then I'm going to cover the demonic realm specifically, and we'll discuss various ways that the demonic realm manifests itself today... ...and various mediums through which humans interact with the demonic realm. We're going to focus in on the demonic realm because that's what we're dealing with here in 1 Samuel 28. Saul consulting with a woman who has a familiar spirit in order to divine the future and to call up Samuel... Finally, third and finally, we're going to understand what the Bible says about contending with this realm in a way that is God-blessed and purposed. So without further ado, let's dig in this morning. The topic as we speak of it today is derived from Saul's interaction with a witch in 1 Samuel 28 where we read in verse 8. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment and he went and two men with him and they came to the woman, this would be a witch, by night and he said, I pray thee divine unto me by the familiar spirit and bring me him up whom I shall name. Here we see a woman who is in contact with what is called a familiar spirit. We talked about this two weeks ago, that this would have been a demonic counterpart who was able to communicate with her. And in this case, Saul is asking for her to divine, which we'll talk about a little bit, is to give some advice about the future and to do so by calling up Samuel or to be to be um, as a medium speaking to Samuel and thus giving him the advice of Samuel. So uh, effectively he's kind of saying, I still want God's advice, but God's not giving it to me, so let's get a demon to give it to me. And of course we know that that didn't work well for him. Now in order to fully understand the power and the motives of the spirit realm, I would like to begin foundationally with an understanding of the place of the human race within a much larger perspective of the conflict between God and Satan. And there are different uh, descriptions of this conflict. Um, I call it the kingdom conflict. Sometimes it's called the angelic conflict. But there is a conflict. There's something going on that we need to know about. And I'd like us to think back as we consider this to the creation of the world by God. And consider with me the events of that creation within the context of God creating a kingdom. A kingdom is uh, where you have a person who has the right to rule. He has a realm over which he rules. and And he is actively exercising that rule. He is actively exercising that authority. Now the Bible tells us that God brought the created order into existence within a six day span. And within the scope of God's creative work, Within the scope of God's creation were the angelic beings, which Job 38 verse 7 tells us, saying together as the foundations of the earth were fastened. So the angels were in existence when God created, when he when he put together the foundations of the earth, the angels were there. They were singing together at the creation of the earth. When he made the foundations of the earth. And as we consider, consider this creation, the angelic beings being there. On the sixth day, the Bible says that God created man. And the Bible tells us that man was created differently than the rest of creation. Very unique. From anything else within the scope of God's creation, Genesis 1:27 tells us this: God created man in His own image, in the image of God created He him, male and female created He them. The scriptures tell us in Genesis 1:27 that humans bear the image of God. The image of God does not mean, as the New Agers would say today, a spark of divinity, so that God is, so that we're all a little bit of God. That's not the image of God in man. The image of God in man is not about what we look like. It's not that we bear his resemblance because we know John 4 tells us that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So if we're looking for a definitive definition of what it means that we have that we bear the image of God, I can't really give you one this morning. I'm going to give you some some attributes that I believe when all combined together is kind of what it means to bear the image of God but that that topic that idea itself is not fully explained in the scripture but what we do know is that mankind has it where nothing else in the created order is said to have it the concept uh, we know more about what the image of God is not than what it is when it comes to the image of God in man as I mentioned it's not about our bodies because God is a spirit and and so he does not have a physical form as such except through God the Son the image of God likely has nothing to do with our possession of personality emotion and will because if you've ever owned a dog or a cat you know that cats and dogs and animals have personality emotion and will right your your dog has a personality your cat has a personality that's distinctive it has a will of its own and you can see how it exercises Emotions, And so, so it, it, has, it, it can't have to do with personality and, uh, and emotion and will because that's not something that's exclusive to man. The Bible tells us that God gave man unique dominion over the earth. But the dominion over the earth seems to be connected to the fact that man has the image of God. It's not the reason why man has the image of God. So none of those things are the reason or are, is, excuse me, get my tense uh, right there, is the image of God in man. But what man has that is unique to him? What man has as a created being, which the animals do not, and even the angels do not, as we see it in scripture, is that he has within himself the capacity to exercise himself in unhindered fellowship with God and to interact with God on that spiritual plane. The totality of man as a living, intelligent, determining, moral creature who can have fellowship, personal relationship with his creator is something that we don't find in any, anything else in the created order. Now as we consider the image of God in man and the special place that man has been given in creation, we also know this from Psalm 8 verse 5. As David is speaking and he's speaking to God, he says, Thou hast made him, man, a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. And in Philippians 2, we see this as well, that when Jesus became a man, the Bible says that Jesus made himself a little lower than the angels. And so we recognize that in the echelon of creation, we can consider some elements of that, right? Uh, angelic beings, they're created beings, they bear the limitations of a created being, but they are superior to humanity in many ways. They are immortal beings with spiritual bodies as opposed to physical bodies. They do not suffer the limitations that we have. Uh, However, we also see in scripture that angelic beings are extremely intelligent creatures and and they have that uh, intelligent capacity, but what they don't bear is the image of God. They don't bear the image of God. Harkening back to this creation week. We find that at the end of those seven days, God says, as he looked upon everything that he created, as he looked upon his creation, that it was very good. Now, if there had been sin in the world at that point, then the world would not have been very good. God could not have called it very good. But he called it very good. And by that, we can infer that at that point there was no sin in God's creation there was no evil in God's creation but somewhere at between the end of that seventh day and the time when we see a serpent speaking to Adam and Eve, excuse me speaking to Eve and dealing with Adam and Eve something changed the Bible indicates that angels like man were created in what we call unconfirmed holiness. So they were created, and they were created without sin. But though they were created without sin, they were created in a state of holiness, there was uh, nothing in them sinful, but they had the capacity to exercise their will, either for or against God. Now from the New Testament in Matthew, Jesus Christ said that in heaven we will not marry or be given in marriage, but will be like the angels. We see that angels are not marrying or given in marriage, and as God designs procreation to take place solely within the, the realm of, of marriage and, and giving in marriage, and we see the way that God has designed angels, we see them as um, beings that are not given They're spoken of in the the masculine, and yet as we look at the scriptural teaching of angelic beings, we don't see gender distinctions. We don't see male and female angels, nor do we see the idea in the scriptures that angels would procreate. What we understand is that the angelic hosts are a set number. They were created, and that, that, that number has stayed the same. Now there came a point, the scriptures tell us, that prior to the fall of man, the angels had an opportunity to exercise themselves either for God or against God. And throughout the Bible, we find that the primary adversary of God is an angelic being whose name in the heavens was called Lucifer. He was a cherub named Lucifer, but we know him better as Satan, which is a word that means adversary. Now, the most comprehensive description that we have of Lucifer's fall in the Bible is found in Ezekiel chapter 28, where he is referenced as the king of Tyrus. Say, well, pastor, how do you know that the king of Tyrus is speaking of of Satan and not some physical man? I don't have time to get into that today, but I have preached through the book of Ezekiel. And if you are interested in knowing why we connect the king of Tyrus to Satan, I encourage you to go back to LegacyBaptistChurch.net And to listen to that sermon. But in Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning in in verse 11, we read this. Excuse me, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God. Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. Thy sardius, topaz, and the diamond the beryl, and the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherim that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Here we read a description of one who is called the anointed Cherub, a word which references a type of angelic being. We see at least two, perhaps three different uh, categories of angelic beings in the scripture. We see the cherubs and we see the seraphs. And then we see perhaps just another realm of angels. They may be cherubs or seraphs or they may be a a third type just called angels, messengers. We're not quite sure as far as theologians uh, are concerned. And yet what we do know is that cherubs was one of the classifications of angels. The text tells us that this anointed cherub walked in the garden of Eden. And is so beautiful that he was described as having precious stones as his covering. Scriptures tell us he walked upon the holy mountain of God. And the Bible says, giving a distinct picture of the abode of God in heaven, that he walked throughout this place. Where, where, God, where, where God abides. The scriptures also say that he had pipes prepared in thee. The workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes. Speaking of musical instruments. The idea being that this angelic cherub had an incredible capacity to praise the Lord. He had a beautiful voice. He, he, he could create beautiful music. But then things changed. Continue reading in verse 15, and the scriptures tell us, Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane, Out of the mountain of God and I will destroy thee O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness I will cast thee to the ground I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee so this anointed cherub this beautiful angelic scripture or this beautiful angelic being the scriptures tell us in Ezekiel 28 was lifted up with pride because of his own beauty and his own splendor and that pride was found in him. Iniquity was found in him and so he was cast out of the mountain of God. We're given a deeper understanding of the, the sin of Lucifer and the fall of Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14. Where we read in verses 12 and through 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning?" Lucifer said, I'll get higher than the stars, which are angels. I'll get higher than them all. I will exalt myself over all of them. I will be like God. That is the pride. As he was exalted with his own beauty and his own pride, that was his determination. I will be like God. For this sin, Lucifer was cast out of heaven. But prior to his exile from the abode of God, the Scriptures seem to... Uh, imply that a large number of angels actually followed Lucifer. They agreed with Lucifer. They they followed Lucifer in his rebellion. In Revelation chapter twelve verses three and four, we read this, and there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered. For to devour her child as soon as it was born. The Bible often, as we've mentioned, uses the term stars of heaven to describe angelic beings. We've seen that already in at least three passages of scripture today. And the scriptures tell us that this red dragon, as it's using this imagery, took his tail and cast down to earth a third of the stars of heaven. This red dragon is one who would seek to consume the child being delivered by the woman. And as you look in the scriptures, we see the woman being Israel, the child being Christ or the Messiah. Satan, of course, being the one that would seek to destroy him or consume him. And so we would understand from this, at least by implication, that a third of the angels of heaven followed Satan in his rebellion and were cast out of the third heaven relegated to the domain of this earth. The other angels, it would appear, that did not follow Satan, were at that point followers of God, elect angels they're called, confirmed in their holiness. And so you have this set number of angels, two-thirds of them confirmed in their holiness, one-third of them as fallen angels, following Satan and um, devoted to his kingdom. Now as we enter the Garden of Eden, back to the creation week, the seven days of creation, God rests, everything is very good. At some point, the angels fall, and now we have sin. Uh, Satan and his his demons are, are in the, the, the realm of creation, but they have no power over this realm. And then there's man. Man was created, like the angels, in unconfirmed holiness. And the scriptures tell us that man, as he bears the image of God, was given... Dominion over all the earth. So, all creation was under the dominion of mankind Adam and by extension Eve. Now, this is very important. Don't miss this. Because the image of God in man, because of that image, mankind has been given dominion. He was the representative of God for the human race, but also for creation. So, in Genesis, God is operating in sovereign control. He is leading his creation, the kingdom that he has created. Satan has his angels. God has his angels, but Satan has no dominion. And this is where Adam and Eve come in. The Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that after the fall of Lucifer out of heaven, he appeared to the woman in the form of a serpent. In the book of Revelation, we see... Satan called that old serpent, so we know that Satan is the serpent being spoken of here. And if you're in in Genesis, where I had you turn, chapter 3, this is where we'll pick up. In verse 1 of Genesis 3, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. As we consider the state of Adam and Eve, as I mentioned, they were, similar to the angels, created in unconfirmed holiness. They were not created in sin. They had no sinful flesh. They, they had no sin nature within them. They had not sinned, and yet they had never been tested. They, they had the opportunity to exercise their will either for or against God. But also remember the context. Satan has been cast out of heaven, yet he has not been destroyed. He wants to exalt himself above the throne of God. He is seeking. He is seeking to assert his right to rule. He is seeking to assert his right to rule above God and he desires his own kingdom, a counterfeit kingdom outside of God's authority. So Satan speaks to Eve and he says to her, has God really said that ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Satan immediately twists the word of God. He immediately confuses it. He immediately takes the word of God and bends it. To try and make what God has done in righteousness seem wrong. How dare God keep from you a tree? And Eve, she, he, she gets it right here. She says, no, 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 serpent. You don't get it. It's not that God has withheld from me a tree. It's that God has given me everything but one. You see the perspective difference? One says God is taking something away from you. The other says God has given me everything except for one thing. And in Eve's perspective, I have the run of everything but one. I can do that. I can, I can avoid the one to have everything else. But Satan says, but, but there's one. God doesn't like you. God is withholding something from you. It's the seed of Satan. So she's, she gets it right. But then Satan responds. And he says this as we continue. You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan now goes beyond just casting doubt, just bending or twisting the word of God, and directly attacks the integrity of God. This is an outright lie, claiming that God is doing what he is doing to withhold from her and from her husband, God's power to withhold from them the privileges of being like God. That he is depriving man of something. That he's jealous of man. That he doesn't want man to be happy. And that what God says is over there that you can't have is what would actually make you happy. This is all sounding familiar. He's still doing this today, right? It's happening all the time. Satan and his minions and the world saying, If you'll only go here, do this, you'll be happy. Money, fame, Sexual impurity, whatever it is, you'll be happy. The the lottery, right? The big lottery that we had. And and what what keeps coming out every time there's a big lottery? They have all the articles by billionaires and millionaires saying, Hey, look, money can do some things for you, but what it can't do is buy you happiness. It's not going to be the the thing that solves it. And yet people have it in their minds because of the deceits of Satan and of this world that, that money can do something which it cannot do. It has no capacity to do. Satan's been perpetuating this lie from the beginning. Do you see what's happening here? Satan is giving Eve the conditions of his kingdom. He's saying, if you follow me, if you listen to me, I can make you happy. I can give you power. I can give you everything you want. Everything that God is trying to keep away from you, he's trying to hold you down. I can offer it to you. If you'll join my kingdom. If you'll place yourself under my authority. He's calling Eve to yield the truth and, and the following of, of God and his kingdom for, for this error, but power and following Satan and his kingdom. The text continues. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Eve had no sin nature. So she wasn't contending with With the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life as we would think of it uh, from an internal perspective. Because she didn't have an internal sin nature. She sees the tree, she listens to the argument of Satan, and she rationalizes that it's good food. After all, if God didn't want us to eat it, then he shouldn't have put it there, right? Right? If God didn't want us to eat it, he shouldn't have put it there. Well, no. No. That's, that's God, God said, I'm giving you everything else. Don't touch this. God can do that. Then she looks at the tree and she says, well, the tree is also pleasant to the eyes. If it looks good and it feels good, then let's just do it, right? If it feels good, do it. If it looks good, do it. You hear that one all the time? It's the lie of Satan. Finally, she's allured by the prospect of wisdom. It can make me wise. It can make me be like God. God is withholding something from me and I can have it if I follow Satan. So she ate. The text tells us. Now the human race did not fall to sin when Eve ate of the fruit. She's not the representative of the the human race, is she? She is a helpmeet. Headship tells us that the man is is the representative of the woman. So when Eve fell to sin, mankind didn't fall to sin. It would have had to have been Adam that fell to sin. But the scriptures tell us that Eve gave to her husband and he did eat. When Adam ate of that fruit, he and Eve both died. Because Adam was the representative of the human race. Adam was the representative of the marriage. Adam was the representative of the family. Adam, the, the scriptures make it very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. The woman was deceived. But Adam rebelled. He knew what he was doing. And he exercised his will against God. So what did Adam do at that moment? Well, first off, he submitted his headship to his wife. Which the Bible says never, ever, 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 ever goes the way we want it to. There is a order of things. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians chapter 5. And anytime the man submits his headship, his, his leadership role to his wife, bad things happen. Adam submitted himself to the, to the headship of his wife. He said, I don't, we don't know what he said. Was it Was it, well... She's coaxing me to do it or, well, she did it so I can do it. Well, nothing happened to her. We don't know. But whatever happened, he submitted his headship. Second, he willfully rebels against God. And as the representative of the human race and as the one who has dominion over all creation, he charted the course on that day for everyone who who would be born in Adam. Everyone who would be born of a human father from that point on would be born with a sin nature baked into us because our father Adam chose to join the kingdom of Satan and to reject the kingdom of God, the authority, the rule of God. He rejected the authority of God and he submitted himself to the authority of Satan. So from this point on, every single child that's born into this world of a human father is born as a, we might say, a naturalized citizen of Satan's kingdom. Sin nature, a bent toward doing that which is against God. Rebellion against God. And at this point, the lines were drawn. God and his angelic creation were working toward the kingdom of God. Satan and his angels, his, the fallen angels, as well as mankind, and all of creation, cursed by God because of sin, in line with Satan and his kingdom. And as God then appears, the Bible says that God appeared... And he comes to walk with Adam in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve do what sin makes us do. They became fearful and they hid themselves from the presence of God. This is what sin does. Causes us to seek to hide ourselves from the presence of God. But God confronts them on their sin. They admit their transgressions. Adam says, it's Eve's fault. It's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. Eve says, it's the serpent's fault. He beguiled me. So God begins with the serpent, and then he works his way up to Adam. And this is what he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. In this verse, God promises that He will send one who will crush Satan's head, breaking the power over which he had, the power He has over the human race and over creation, redeeming them back to God. And so we see in Genesis 3:15, the first time that God preached the gospel, that though each man and woman will be born into this world in Adam and thus a citizen of Satan's counterfeit kingdom, Yet God would take it upon himself to offer a chance to be, to offer every man a chance to be redeemed, reconciled back to God, brought out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of Christ through this seed, the one who is Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus lived on the earth for 33 years. He lived and he was tempted on all points like as we and yet without sin. He, in the end of his days, As a sinless man was condemned to death, condemned by sinful men, men devoted to the principles of Satan and his counterfeit kingdom, and they hung him on a cross. The Bible tells us that on the cross, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so on the cross, Jesus secured our salvation from the power of our sin nature, which was born out through Adam's rebellion. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And as he rose again on the third day, he didn't just claim victory over sin. He claimed victory over death. So that every power that Satan has to hold people in his kingdom, sin and death has been broken. Jesus Christ has broken the chains of sin. He has broken the chains of death. So that those who accept him as their savior need not fear or rest under the power of either sin or death. He defeated them both once for all. So what is Jesus waiting for? Why doesn't he come and finish the job? Why doesn't he come and renew the kingdom and create the kingdom that that is supposed to be created? Well, he's waiting for the father's... Go ahead. Well, what is the father waiting for? Well, he's waiting until everyone who will accept Christ does accept Christ. Everyone who could possibly accept Christ will accept Christ, at which point the scriptures tell us he will return. Now, as we look into the word of God, this is what we see. This brings us to today. Today we are in the midst of a kingdom conflict. Satan is ultimately defeated, but he is fighting right now. We are in the midst of a conflict right now for the souls of men. You and I are in the midst of this battle. And as we look into the word of God, the angelic realm is incredibly active. And there's no reason to believe that, that anything has changed from the times of the word of God. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago for several centuries demonic activity has been less noticeable in the western world because of the Judeo-Christian worldview. We mentioned it also this morning. As our society becomes more paganized we see it come out of the woodwork more and more. We see direct and open rebellion against the word of God in a way that, that probably several generations at least have not seen them. So let's take some time to consider The enemy of God in this kingdom conflict. The demonic realm and how it touches us today. The demonic realm that that Samuel attempted to invoke in 1 Samuel 28. Now as we look to the scriptures, we find that the Old Testament records relatively minimal demonic activity. We see things like 1 Samuel 28 where you you can go to a woman and, and she can consult with a familiar spirit. But compared to the New Testament... Very little. We don't see a lot of demonic activity, demonically possessed people and such. And this might make sense when we consider that in the New Testament, Satan was bringing everything he had to bear on thwarting the ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth. We already read in, in Revelation chapter 12, 3 and 4 that Satan was deeply interested in destroying the ministry of Christ. And throughout history we have seen an ebb and a flow of demonic activity in regions and in cultures depending upon how much that culture accepts or rejects the truth of God's word. In places such as Haiti, in places such as Nigeria, in places um, uh, that, that uh, like Papua New Guinea, the demonic realm is far more active as we talk to missionaries than we would see in, in our area here because of the, the degree of paganism and, and such that is in their culture. It's, it's all about how they relate to truth. However, biblically speaking, we see the many activities of demons, and we're going to cover just a few of them today, ones that uh, will help give us a perspective on, on how the demonic realm is active today. First we see uh, a very clear testimony of national oppression and control. Uh, In Daniel chapter 10 verse 13 we find that Daniel is praying to God and he's asking for insight about God's plan for Israel. The angel is sent to, to give him, to minister unto him, to tell him God's plan. But the scriptures tell us that he was hindered. And he was hindered by one that is called the Prince of Persia. And the scriptures tell us, once the angelic messenger finally gets to Daniel, that this prince of Persia is a demonic being that was assigned to the realm of, to the nation of Persia. And as the prophecy concerning Daniel and Israel directly related to the Persian kingdom, this demon had authority to withhold or to oppose the angelic messenger that was trying to get to Daniel. And the messenger says that it was not until Michael, the archangel, who also is called the prince of Israel. So Michael is the angel that is assigned to Israel as a nation. It was not until Michael came and stood up and helped in this fight that the angelic messenger was able to make it to Daniel. In verse 20, we find that this angelic messenger prophesies of Greece conquering Persia. And as he says he has to leave, he says that very soon he is going to be fighting not with the Prince of Persia, but with the Prince of Gracia or Greece. Because as the battle rages over the truth of God's word, now the the prince or the demon that is assigned to Greece is going to have the he's going to be in direct conflict with the angelic beings that are are attempting to minister to Israel. As we consider this example, knowing that Michael uh, persists as Israel's protector even through to the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, there's little reason to assume that, that this is not happening still today. That Satan is not seeking to influence on a national scale nations by means of powerful demonic oppression. The second demonic activity we see in the New Testament is that of mental and physical illness inflicted by demonic oppression. Matthew 9.32, we find a man influenced by a demon and unable to speak. Uh, Mark 9.25, we find a man influenced by a demon and he cannot speak or hear. Luke 13.10, a woman has a spirit of infirmity, the scriptures tell us, and was bound by Satan and caused so that she was always stooped. She could not stand up erect until Jesus cast out of her this spirit of infirmity this binding by Satan in Matthew 17-15 we read of a man who is, natural, who is mentally insane a lunatic he throws himself into the fire he throws himself into the water doing to himself personal harm and uh, all of this by, by demonic oppression and possession we see physical strength and capacity the, the demon uh, demoniac of Gadara they would tie him with ropes and he would break those ropes he had the capacity to do superhuman feats because he was possessed by a demon. We see uh, influencing men to sin. Twice in scripture. Uh, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. The Bible tells us right. And caused him. As, as Satan entered into him. To to betray Jesus. We also see when Ananias lies to the Holy Ghost. Peter says why has Satan filled thine heart. To lie to the Holy Ghost. So he can influence men to sin. And then also he can promote false doctrine. Or Error, demons can do this. First uh, Timothy four one tells us that in the last days men will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. In James three fifteen we're warned that the wisdom which is not from above, the wisdom which is from this earth, is sensual and devilish. In First John four one the Bible says that we need to try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false spirits, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so this is a list of a few, certainly not all of the ways that the demonic realm is influencing people. The demonic realm was active in the New Testament as we look in the New Testament. Now as we carry this over to today, I'm not going to talk about each one of these, but if we use our discernment which has been given to us by the Spirit of God that indwells us, can we not see how the world is being taken in certain directions today and individuals are being taken in certain directions. Nationally it's not very difficult, right, to see how the nations have been playing into the hands of Satan. Babel. Babel was mankind's attempt to ascend unto heaven, right? To be like God, to reach the heavens. It was the the epitome of mankind's rebellion against God that they will be they will exalt themselves to the heavens, that they will become one nation, that they will become one world, that they will not disperse, that they will unite. And we've seen that ever since, have we not? Did we not see Alexander the Great try to try to unite the world? Did we not see Constantine try to unite the world? Did we not see Napoleon try to unite the world? Did we not see Hitler try to unite the world? And are we not seeing it today as well? Do we not see the United Nations trying to unite the world? Each one of these kingdoms attempting to undo what Babel did. Each one of these kingdoms attempting to bring man to the ascension that he was attempting to do back in the days of Babel. What about mental and physical illness? Well, mental illness has been on a meteoric rise, has it not, in this country in the last 50 years? Secular science blames it on their previous lack of capacity to identify mental illness. They say it's always been there, we've just never identified it before. We've always identified it as things such as demonic possession. Well, maybe we're working backwards, not forwards on this. I'm not saying all mental illness is demonically inspired. I'm not saying that at all but in a society that in the last 50 years has kicked God out of every public institution, kicked God out of schools, prayer and Bible reading, kicked God out of everything public, is it any wonder that Satan has not sought to fill that gap? Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that our veterans are coming back to combat with with tremendous incapacity to to reinitiate their lives? when chaplains are being effectively silenced in the military and there's, God is not allowed anymore? If God is not allowed, something's going to fill that gap, folks. Should it surprise us that Satan, whom the Bible calls the great deceiver and the father of lies, is tormenting minds of people enslaved by sin? Promoting false doctrine. Well, if you've ever done any reading in the realm of New Age spirituality or occultism, you will find that false doctrine doesn't just come from the minds of crazy people. Oftentimes the minds of those crazy people are being influenced by exterior sources. Many of the New Age spiritists and occult leaders have said that they have had spirit guides who directly teach them and dictate to them their philosophies. Be it a man named Alistair Crowley, who is a British author and was a British author and occultist, a Satanist, had a huge influence on modern day Satanism and occultism. He um, coined the phrase, do what thou wilt, or do as thou wilt. You see it, Jay-Z wears a hoodie all the time that says that, the musician. He has a shirt, a uh, hoodie that says, do what thou wilt. That, that is one of the laws that he wrote, that he read in Alistair Crowley's The Book of the Law, which is effectively the handbook for Satan worship. Be it Alice Bailey, who wrote between 1919 and 1949, was one of the first writers to coin the term New Age. She wrote on many religious-based themes and was guided by a spirit guide who she called the Tibetan. Aleister Crowley was guided by one named Iwas. Be it the UFO movement, the alien movement whose leaders communicate with demonic spirits claiming to be aliens. They say that these aliens communicate with them telepathically and you know what one of the most well-known alien leaders is that communicates telepathically? His name is Ashtar, which you can trace all the way back to Babel in the Assyrian Babylonian god Ishtar. I mean, he's not even pretending to be a different name. He's giving himself away, but he's, he's an alien now. No, he's a demon. Be it the music industry. We talked about Jay-Z. There have been several musicians who have claimed to have an alter ego, a stage ego, something that comes over them when they perform. Jimi Hendrix, Jim, Morse, uh, uh, Jim Morrison, Ozzy Osbourne, of course, Beyoncé. They all claim that something comes over them and performs through them. Unless we ignore it, the doctrines of demons have touched the world of so-called Christianity as well. Be it Rick Warren and Robert Schuler, whose philosophies of ministry are borrowed from the overtly demonically influenced New Age spiritists of men like Bernie Siegel. Be it a man even like Joel Olstein, who is regularly on Oprah Winfrey's talk show. Oprah Winfrey who is a prophetess of New Age spiritualism. Who is into occultism. Be it Sarah Young, whose most recent book, Jesus Calling, claims that she is a medium for channeling the direct words of Jesus, that she speaks to Jesus and that Jesus speaks to her. Words, however, which directly contradict what the word of God says, so that we know that what she is actually channeling is a false Jesus, is a demon claiming to be Jesus. Make no mistake, demons are active today. And make no mistake, they're touching touching the Christian realm. They're finding their ways in. So, this is what we know. We're actively engaged in a kingdom conflict between the kingdom of God and the counterfeit kingdom of Satan. Humanity is born into the kingdom of Satan through sin and it serves that kingdom and its false promises until such time as Christ redeems us by placing our full faith and trust in him. Christ came to redeem men from the curse of sin, to transfer us out of the power of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ, found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. The agents and philosophies of error, however, are dominating this world system. The world system is lost in the, in the doctrine of devils. And that's the direction this world is heading. Now, I don't mean by this that the devil is hiding behind every rock. We don't need to become so conspiratorial or or, or paranoid that we just lock ourselves in our house and say, I can't do anything because the devil's there. But what we do find is that the course of this world is driven by sin. And sin is that which is against God. And as we have considered the reality and activity of the demonic realm, let's now consider the mediums through which the demonic realm is active today. (sighs) Should have started earlier. I give you a list here. The first category is also the most intentional. It's the occult. The occult comprises those who go out and actively look for the demonic realm. And if you look for it, you will find it. It's generally broken up into three divisions or three practices. Divination, spiritism, and magic or sorcery. Divination is uh, reading or interpreting signs or omens, whether um, falsely, just trying to do it, or, or through a spirit guide, through a demonic helper, inspirational divination. We see an example of this in Acts 16.16 16, where a woman was, was possessed with the spirit of divination and was following Paul and saying that this man is he, he's a representative of Christ but he was being such a, a nuisance and a bother and, 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 and such to Paul that he ended up casting that demon out of her and then the people that controlled her got very, very angry because she was a source of great income for them. But now she couldn't prophesy anymore. She couldn't divine anymore because that spirit had been cast out of her. Examples of divination. Tarot cards, palm reading, tea leaves, astrology, divining rods, or water witching as they call it, prophetic dreams or visions, Ouija boards, crystal balls, clairvoyance. This is the demonic realm in its most overt form. These are mediums through, which the, through the occult through which you access the demonic realm. Stay away from this stuff. Spiritism generally speaks of consultation with the dead. Physical phenomena such as moving of objects, demonic dictation and such, speaking in a trance, metaphysical phenomena such as ghost sightings, alien phenomenon, communication with the dead, which from our study last week about the afterlife we can safely infer doesn't happen outside of very unique circumstances. This is why the witch of Endor was so surprised when Samuel actually came up. She wasn't expecting that. She, she was expecting her demon to speak. And yet God allowed Samuel to come up. That's not normal. And that's why she was so surprised. People claim they speak to dead relatives or celebrities, but what they're doing is they're speaking to demons. The third, magic or sorcery. I I must hasten on. The occult divides magic into two categories. Black magic used to evil. White magic used for good. That's the world's definition of evil and good because they're all satanic. It's all satanic. White magic, black magic, it's all satanic. The category comprises hypnosis and healing and love, hate magic, voodoo, demonic cursing and blessing, those sorts of things. Wearing of amulets, dream catchers, other spirit symbols, much that you see in pagan religions today. Spiritism. Mysticism is the next step back. We talk about the occult. That's all the occult. That's all directly seeking to connect to the the demonic realm. Mysticism is the next step. These are things like meditation, spiritual yoga, spiritual martial arts and the su- and such. Mysticism involves seeking a union with a deity, with God, and the apprehension of spiritual knowledge that would be otherwise inaccessible to the intellect, but it rejects the scriptures as the source of that knowledge and seeks alternate means of finding it. This is new age Spirituality, Alternate means outside of the word of God to connect to the collective consciousness. It's what they oftentimes call God. Things such as meditation and yoga are oftentimes used in near eastern religions to put a person in a state of receptivity to this cosmic consciousness. Now I'm not saying that yoga as stretching is a bad thing. I'm not saying that martial arts as self-defense is a bad thing. But if your yoga instructor or your martial arts instructor sought to bring any spiritism into it, you are touching mysticism. And it's a path to the demonic realm. That's why many pastors have warned against yoga being brought into the church and, and warned against these sorts of things. It's not because they're against stretching. But when you get into the spirit side of that, It is near eastern mysticism is what the spirit side of that is. And it's dangerous. Another common way the demonic realm touches the physical realm is through substance abuse. Those under the influence of substances such as drugs and alcohol often open themselves up to demonic influence. For centuries various drugs have been used among spiritist religions. As things such as Native Americans, nearest nearest religions, as a gateway to the spirit realm. That they would put themselves under the influence of a drug as a way to open up their mind, open up their consciousness to the spirit realm. You you would hear a lot of this back in in the 60s and 70s, right, with LSD and such. They would say that that is one of the, the gateways to creativity, the gateways to the cosmic consciousness. LSD and some of these other drugs that were used in that way, they were opening themselves up to something all right. And drugs have been used since the beginning of time to open minds to the control of the demonic realm. And as people open themselves up to these practices, there is a real danger that we are opening ourselves up to the influence of this realm. Experimentation with things such as Ouija boards, the use of mind-altering substances, participation in occultic events, uh, they are a, a gateway that can lead us into the spirit realm in a way that can open up great dangers. Pursuit of the alien phenomena, opening oneself up to that. Opening oneself up to the spirit realm through meditation or spiritually focused yoga or martial arts, hypnosis. Consultation with mediums like mind readers, fortune tellers, uh, many of whom are frauds, but some are not. And if you find one that is not, you are opening yourself up to a very dangerous realm. And whether you agree with me or not, this is being brought very openly into the world today through literature, particularly through the Harry Potter series. Agree with me, don't agree with me, these books accurately reflect Wiccan teachings. It's not just fantasy. It's couched in fantasy, but it teaches Wiccan, which is the religion of witchcraft, it teaches Wiccan principles. It is a religious book. They are religious books. Do the research if you don't believe me. You'll find that interest in the occult and in Wicca surges every time one of those books comes out. And you'll find that if you do the research on the consistency of what are in those books with Wiccan and occultic teachings, it's pretty accurate. It's actually introducing children to these concepts. I was going to show you a brief clip. I don't have time for it, Matt, so don't worry about it. There's a new video, a new series out on Amazon called Just Add Magic, and it's about three 13-year-old girls or something that have a magical cookbook. And it's couched in friendship and loving family and loving friends and all of these great ideas. And it's introducing young people, targeting young people, and introducing them to the spirit realm, the magic realm, as if it's a safe thing. As if it's just all fun and games. It's extremely dangerous. And it can lead children into the occult. And we need to be careful. Matt, I'm going to skip down past all that summary of that video clip that I don't have time to show. So we've seen the reality of the kingdom conflict, which is being waged all around us. We've seen the reality of the spirit realm and how it's manifesting itself. Finally, and, and I, I can't I can't stop because I can't le- leave this be. How do we fight it? We've got it, we've got to hit this because this is the key. This is this is the important part. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You can't fight this but God can. God is not asking you to fight this battle. God is asking you to stand and, and let him fight it. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He continues in verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God. That ye might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting against physical people in this earth as far as sin is concerned. We are wrestling against principalities, powers rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. I want to get into all of those. I've preached through Ephesians before. So if you want to know, go back and listen to those sermons. As far as what each of those things are, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world. They're all speaking of the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. That is the battle. We are fighting a spiritual battle. I am not fighting against politicians and false teachers and apostates uh, because I'm a Christian. Those people are teaching false teaching but but the problem is the spirit realm that is empowering that the problem is the doctrines of devils that are teaching that these these men are just deceived or they're deceivers as followers of the demonic realm the world out there is under the influence of spiritual ideologies and philosophies and concepts that are motivating their thoughts and their actions the best way we can describe it is by describing ourselves. As a born-again believer, you operate under the impulses of the Spirit of God. That you pray and you you fellowship with the Lord and the Spirit of God leads you and you have impulses by the Spirit of God and you follow those and He tells you what you ought to do. The Spirit of God is intended to lead you. In the same way, just as what you think and what you do and why you do it has been framed by your worldview, has been framed by truth and, and is, is guided to you by the spirit of God that is in you. In the same way, the world, the way it thinks and what it does and why it does it, has been framed in their worldview, taught and established in their minds by the spirit of Antichrist through the philosophies of this world and the prince of this world who is Satan. And we must understand the world this way or we're never going to be able to combat the philosophies of this world properly. Now when going to war, the most important element is being personally prepared for whatever the enemy might throw at you. And this is found by putting on the armor, and in in the case of the spiritual realm, it's the armor of God. So Ephesians 6 verses 14 through 17 says this, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This passage describes six elements that comprise our spiritual victory over the principalities, the powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. The first one mentioned is truth. Then righteousness, obedience to the word of God, preparation of the gospel of peace. In a world filled with anger and violence, we are peacemakers. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Excuse me. Yes. I thought I may have skipped one, but I didn't. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the source of all truth. Rooted in in the understanding and discernment given by the spirit of God, the word of God. When we put those elements on, when we put on truth and righteousness, obeying the word of God, and and we assume faith. This is what we learn about every week. This is the stuff that we normally learn about. As we assume those characteristics, as we assume Christ's righteousness, as we assume, as we uh, uh, accept the truth of God's word, as we live this life by faith, as we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, certainly the helmet of salvation... As we take the word of God and we learn it and we use it properly, we can have the capacity to stand in the battle. But there's one more element that we need to mention. Overshadowing all of the armor of God is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18. In all of these things, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Prayer in the spirit Prayer in the spirit is God is the God ordained means by which you are able to communicate with God and find the capacity to stand as well as to intercede for others and help them stand. Prayer in the spirit brings the strength of the kingdom of God, God and his angels to bear on the earthly and material circumstances of our lives. Prayer in the spirit is an acknowledgement of and in alignment with the reality of God's power in heaven and upon the earth. And by God's design, it is the process by which we humble ourselves before God. We yield to him both physical and spiritually because we fully believe that he can do far better than we can. Prayer is an exercise of faith. That we know the battle over sin and the battle over the hearts of men. The daily provision of our needs. The daily steps which are ordered by the Lord. It's all about God. And in prayer we take those elements and we place them at God's feet. And we get them off of ourselves. So we gird the armor of God. We prepare ourselves to fight the battle through prayer. I reference you as we um, come near our close here to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-6, through 6, which says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience, when your obedience is fulfilled the weapons of our warfare are not carnal they are spiritual and by using these spiritual weapons there is the capacity to tear down spiritual strongholds what does that mean? anger, addictions, lies, deceit theft, violence, sexual sins love of money, materialism every work of the flesh, every sin anything that can take a stronghold in our lives can be torn down by means of spiritual victory So we cast down imaginations, Paul says. The word meaning reasoning. And what Paul is saying is this. To fight this battle on a spiritual plane, first you have to stop trying to fight it on a humanistic plane. You have to reject the philosophies of the world as pertaining to wealth and happiness, as pertaining to health and wellness and child raising and family life and religion and spiritual benefit and entertainment and amusement. And and, and name the area that the world is directing us toward and we have to assume the mindset of Christ not the mindset of the world. We have to take our thoughts and bring them into captivity. That sometimes our emotions will seek to deceive us and we must fall back upon the word of God where there's conflict. That this world is in conflict with God and we must trust God and take our thoughts and bring them into captivity. Subject it to truth. Now, if we put on the armor of God, we fight this warfare. Satan is defeated. I was going to give you a list of ways in which this can be short-circuited. Matt, you can flip over to that one. I'm just going to show it to you. Sin. Humanism. False doctrine. Disregard for angelic spirits. Disregard for the things. I was, I was listening to a... a um, teaching recently and they they were talking about the danger of, of many in the charismatic movement that try to do things such as rebuke Satan and try to rebuke the spirit realm. In Jude, we find that even Michael the archangel would not bring a railing accusation against Satan, but he would say, the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael would not fight that battle. We don't rebuke Satan. Don't believe what Kenneth Copeland says. That he says, demons, I rebuke you. Satan, I rebuke you. That's dangerous. It is seeking to bring ourselves into authority over a realm that we have no authority over. God has authority over it. The Lord rebuke you. Okay. I rebuke you. That's a sign of a false teacher, folks. Be careful. Be careful. Jude says, false teachers bring railing accusations against demonic powers. That's exactly what Judas is teaching, that that is a mark of a false teacher. Okay, moving on. Final admonition. Thank you for your patience. Final admonition. Satan's kingdom is focused upon power and lies. God's kingdom is focused upon humanity and truth. We are not in a power conflict against the realm of Satan. That's God's business. Our job is to hold fast to the truth of God's word and live in the humility that God has called us to live. Follow Christ. But what you notice about Satan and his kingdom is it's always about power. Satan wants power through deceit and he offers humans power. Satan's kingdom is consumed with this. The occult wants power, right? So they go to Satan. Many nations want power. Satan can give that to them. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did Satan promise him? Power. That's what Satan promised him. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus appealed to truth to fight the temptation of power. And if we are going to fight this battle if we are going to fight the earthly manifestations of the demonic realm, we fight it through the truth. Jesus came proclaiming, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus came saying, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? Free. The truth. The truth is how we fight this battle. The truth in prayer. The truth through the word of God. The truth as we live it out in our lives. The truth as we obey it. The first order of business on the armor of God was to have our loins girt about with truth. In the Garden of Eden, remember, Satan deceived Eve into seeking power at the expense of truth. And he's doing the same thing today. The truth is the power of God. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The truth is the power of God. We don't need to come into confrontation with the demonic realm In a power struggle. Because where truth abides. Satan has no power. The gospel is the power of God. Truth is the power of God. And to wage the battle against the kingdom properly. It is to love truth. It is to obey truth. It is to proclaim the truth. Let's pray.